listeners. I'm Joni B. Cole, host of Author Can I Ask You? For people like me who love books and the stories behind the books, this show gives me the chance to ask authors about what they write and why they write. Plus, I like to throw in a few odd questions just to get to know each author a little bit better as a person. Let's get started and meet today's guest. Today, I welcome Joe Ellis, one of the nation's leading scholars of American history. Joe has earned a Pulitzer Prize and National Book Award for his biographies of our nation's earliest presidents. His newest book, The Cause, garnered the following review. Joseph Ellis advises us well in this important new book about America. Our national experiment unfolds still, a mix of hope and fear, light and dark. And there is no surer guide to the beginning of the journey than Ellis. Hi, Joe. I've been looking forward to meeting you. Thanks for taking the time to be on my podcast. Say, it's my pleasure. I'm coming to you from uh, the green mountains of this great state of Vermont. Ellen and I, my wife, have been up here since the pandemic, and we're now starting to think of ourselves as Vermonters. Oh, come on, Joe. You've got to be here about 30 years before you're no longer a flatlander. <laughs> okay. <laughs> You know, Joe, that review of the cause that I just shared, saying that there is no surer guide to our country's beginning, I think that acclaim could apply to pretty much all of your 13 books. So I want to start by asking you, way back when, what drew you to be a scholar of history, particularly this era of American history? I was a Virginian. I went to college at William & Mary. When I was ready to graduate, I didn't know what I was going to do. And I got a scholarship to go to Yale. And then I went in history. I hadn't even majored in history. I'd majored in philosophy. And I ended up working with two historians, C. Van Woodward and Edmund Morgan, both of whom could write history for a larger audience than other academics. And in that sense, they were my models. And while I am a card-carrying historian, that is, I've got a PhD from Yale and all that stuff, chosen to teach undergraduates throughout my teaching career, most of which was at Mount Holyoke, but I taught at Yale, West Point, Amherst, and Williams. And to some extent, I'm writing to an audience like the students I have taught. Uh, they're smart, they're interested in history, and they don't know much. <laughs> you just described me. Yeah. And the question I ask myself when I start is, what is the story? Um, one of the tendencies of professional historians is to only write for other historians. I don't want to do that. But it's so hard to do all the research that goes into a book that the urge to tell your reader everything you've discovered, it's difficult to resist. I think you need to resist that. You're not writing a lab report. Um, <laughs> you're writing a story and you have to ask yourself, what is the story? And discard those note cards that don't fit the story. And so those are guidelines. And I was never that great in all the foreign languages, so I couldn't write academies. And over time, you try to develop a voice. Um, I had a student at Mount Holyoke early in my career came to me to say she wanted to do her thesis with, and uh, she subsequently went on to be head of Showtime. At, and she held up her thumb and she said, Ellis, I want you to teach me to write with a style as distinctive as my fingerprint. Hmm. And I thought, oh, my God, what a wonderful person. But that's in some ways what I've been trying to do all my life, too. I recall a Newsday quote about your work. Ellis lives and breathes 
the founders. And across your works, you've been described as a master of bringing historical figures alive. I want to talk about one of your books, American Dialogue, The Founders and Us. Uh, it came out just a couple of years ago. And like a lot of your work, of course, it looks at this founding era of America, but it also makes a point to draw connections between then and our present reality. So I wondered, what do you think those founders that you write about so vividly in that book, Jefferson and Adams, Madison and Washington, mm. what would they say if they saw the state of the nation now? I'll tell you a story that helps you to see what kind of answer is responsible there. When I finished writing a biography of Washington called His Excellency, I was on a book tour and it was just the beginning of the Iraq war. And a lot of people in the audience want to know, what would Washington say or do about Iraq? And um, I said, he wouldn't know where Iraq was. Um, <laughs> and he wouldn't know about modern warfare. But I could tell they wanted an answer. So the answer I gave them was, Washington would have said, how did we become the British? And people go, oh, my God. But it makes the point, the 18th century is a foreign country. It's like traveling to another country. It speaks with its own accent and it thinks differently. Most Americans were born, lived out their lives and died within a three day horse ride. Um, writing a letter was a much more complicated process than writing an email or time consuming. Um, death by disease was taken for granted. Um, uh, it happened, you know, they, and of course they had no vaccines or they did to smallpox, but it's a different world. And that said, you can't resist attempting to make connections um, if you're only studying the past to recover it on its own terms and not see whether it has anything to teach you, then you're not really a historian. You're more of an antiquarian. So to give you some specific answers, I would think Madison would say, why have you kept this thing called the Electoral College so long? We never liked it so much. <laughs> I think Hamilton would say the thing in the Senate that you do, what's that thing you do? Oh, the filibuster. <laughs> we didn't have that. When did you create that? Why did you create that? And um, some people will not like this, but I think Madison would object to the decision made by the Supreme Court, D.C. versus Heller on the Second yeah. Amendment. What he intended to do when he drafted the Second Amendment was not justify the ownership of arms. The term bear arms, the right to bear arms, bear arms meant carry a weapon in a military unit. So there are specific things in our own uh, political and foreign policy life now that I think they would comment on. But what I try to do in my books is quote them and let readers make up some of their own minds on these matters and not try to impose my own political agenda on you know, I was wondering after decades of scholarship about American history, your books reveal so many insights about our founding, but they also expose so many myths. And you just alluded to one, for example, the interpretation of the Second Amendment. Mm. What's one of the most stubborn myths that most people hold about our nation's founding that you would just like to end once and for all on this podcast? Huh. Well, one, I mean, this is a very prevailing and sort of all-encompassing myth. There's a lot of small ones that fit within it, but we capitalize and mythologize the term and founding fathers. And we imply that tongues of fire appeared over their heads at the Constitutional Convention or the Continental Congress. We suggest that they're demigods. 
And in the next generation, Ralph Waldo Emerson said, they saw God face to face. Hmm. We can only see him secondhand. Well, that imposes an impossible burden because they are human beings like us, imperfect like us, attempting to respond in the midst of the most consequential crisis in American history, the war and its aftermath. Um, And indeed, if they were really demigods or gods, what in heaven's name would we have to learn from? So that's one myth. And the myth leads me, and I hope not inappropriately, to the question you gave me beforehand about what four or five words describe my life or my achievement. And um, it would be the historian of imperfection, the historian of imperfection. Partly that's because I'm personally familiar with lots of imperfections inside myself and across my own lifetime. But it's also because I'm trying to rescue the founders from becoming larger than life. All new nations, new empires especially, seem to require mythological founders. Uh, Romulus and Ramus in Rome, King Arthur for Great Britain. Um, the difference between America and the rest of the world is all these people are real people. Washington really did live and work, walk the earth from 1732 to 1799. And one of the reasons I insist on this is because it then goes to the other extreme. And maybe this syndrome is familiar to you, Jenny, that as a parent, when your children are very, very young, you can do no wrong. You are God or goddess. You are all things. And then later, early adolescence, usually, they pass a line, whether it's metabolic or whatever. And when they pass that line, you can do no right. Indeed, in Freudian terms, they want to kill you. And that's a pretty good picture of the history of the founders in American literature, from demigods to dead white males. But my important point is that both of those images of gods or of devils, if you will, are cartoons. The real people, once recovered, are imperfect human beings. I would say that I agree with Alfred North Whitehead, a British philosopher and wit, who said there were only two occasions in Western history that he knew of when the emerging power behaved about as well as anyone could reasonably expect. One was Rome under Caesar Augustus, and the other was the United States under this group called the Founding Generation. I agree with that. Yeah. I mean, they gave us the first large nation-sized republic, the first secular society without church and state. They won the first war for colonial independence against the dominant military power in the world. They created the framework for the liberal state. Those are huge achievements. But they failed to end slavery or put it on the road to extinction, and they failed to reach a just accommodation with the indigenous people. Those are failures. You know, one of the takeaways of many that I got after finishing American Dialogue was how the horror of slavery, it could have been avoided if not for a seemingly few terrible decisions. And it made me think of today and how other big issues hang in the balance. Can you talk about what's happening now in our country relative to history? Yeah, I mean, to most people, you look back and think, oh, well, that's the way it happened. And if you get inside the events, you see it could have gone the other way and chance takes hold. Um, I think we're living through a divided period. We're living through a backlash moment in American history. 
Um, I think the phrase make America great again, again, when, and um, I think it means before the civil rights movement, before we had a black president, um, there's a lot of racial stuff that's beneath the surface there. I think in the long run, we are going to be, we already are a multiracial society. I mean, the thought occurred to me when I watched the Olympics, when the American team came into the otherwise vacant Tokyo stadium. We were the only multiracial, multicultural team. Hmm. Think about it. The United States is a multicultural society, but we're having a very difficult time adjusting to that. And I think what we're seeing is a backlash against it. Every step forward generates a backlash. Mm-hmm. And after the American Revolution, you get a backlash because what are we going to do with these freed slaves if we free them? Uh, in the northern states, it's segregation. Later, after the Civil War and Reconstruction, you get Jim Crow in the South. And after Barack Obama as president, you get uh, Donald Trump. Those are all backlashes, but they're essentially steps backward along with what Martin Luther King called the arc of the moral universe, which goes upward. And I think that the ultimate resolution of that will be that we are a multiracial, multicultural society, and that we will lead the world in that regard. What other key observations might the founders have on the state of our nation now in 2021? The founders would be surprised at the level of economic and income inequality that exists in the United States now. Um, There wasn't as much money flowing through the system in the 18th century. It wasn't as rich a country. It was still an agrarian society. Um, But they assumed a rough level of equality would be the norm. Jefferson especially assumed that. I'm a Virginian. I went to William Mary where he went. I even have what hair remains is slightly red, just like his. Um, <laughs> another descendant. <laughs> another descendant. But uh, Jefferson believed in something called self-government. That was his highest ideal, his deepest conviction. And some people think that's a libertarian point of view. It can be interpreted that way. What Jefferson meant was that individuals govern themselves, that you don't need government itself to tell you what to do, like, say, wear a mask or Mm. get a vaccine, that you have a moral sense embedded in you. Jefferson's idea is extremely idealistic. Um, And Washington and Hamilton both tried to say, yeah, look, uh, you don't get it. Um, if people had internalized what we needed during the war, we could have fielded an army of 60,000 and won the war in a year. Hmm. But we didn't do that because people wouldn't serve and people wouldn't pay their taxes. And we never had an army larger than 15,000. And so, no, uh, you can't presume that individuals are going to perform that way. Uh, And that's a debate we're still having. And the simplest way to put it is uh, the argument that starts at the founding is still with us. Is government us or is government them? We the people, but who are the people? That's right. We the people. That phrase was written before there was such a thing as the people. Here's a trick question. We know who wrote the Declaration of Independence, right? Yep. Jefferson. Okay. Who wrote the Constitution? I know this thanks to your book. It was James Madison who was the writer of the first draft of the Constitution, but it was the delegate Governor Morris who actually wrote the preamble. Yeah, and um, the draft said, we the people of the states of New Hampshire, Massachusetts, 
Connecticut, Rhode Island. That's what it said. He changed it to we the people of the United States. That's the most important editorial change in American history because it solves verbally the issue that's been underlying the whole convention. Are we a confederation of states or are we a nation? And I think that you can still see this confederation idea very much alive in the debates that are going on places like Texas and Florida, that they don't have to abide by their quarantines, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I thought we resolved that one in 1861 to 65. It wasn't resolved in a courtroom. It was resolved on the bloody battlefields of the Civil War, that the federal government is sovereign on domestic policy, but not completely and still unresolved. But anyway, I think the founding era is the mother load, the the big bang in the American political universe. And I feel privileged to have been the person to spend his time going back and living with those men and women. Speaking of women, is there a female equivalent of the founders or at least someone equally enduring? My students at Mount Holyoke always fall in love with Abigail Adams. They write me, you know, 20 years later, and they're having trouble in their marriage. Abigail helped me. When her sister asked her later in her life, if she had to do it again, would she marry John? She said, I cannot imagine suffering with anyone else. (laughs) And the value that's most underrated and most important in the person's life, she says, is resilience. Joe, as a historian, you must be going bonkers about all this talk about facts don't matter and misinformed people rarely change their minds. I mean, you're someone who puts forth books steeped in facts. Mm. So where do you put that when you're writing these books? I think I'm living in a sane universe. I don't know where the heck some of those people are living. They're literally living in a cul-de-sac. I think that um, I blame a lot of that on the way in which the internet has functioned and the misinformation that's out there becomes the major source of information for a substantial minority of Americans. And... I'll also blame it on us in higher education. People don't know any history, so they don't have any body of information at their disposal to fall back on, and they're vulnerable to misinformation. Hmm. I venture to guess that less than 50%, maybe 30 to 40% of the high school graduates in the United States could pass the civics test that all incoming immigrants applying for citizenship are required to pass. They couldn't. I've been astounded. This is the level of uh, disinformation and the conviction that lies are truth. The amount of it is unprecedented. And when a historian says something's unprecedented, that's saying a lot. Well, Joe, it's on your shoulders to keep fighting the good fight. <laughs> <laughs> Don't put that one on me. But I'll, but I'll, I'll, the fact that I'm finishing on the founding doesn't mean I'm finished. I got some award last year from the uh, New England Genealogical Society. They called it the Lifetime Achievement Award. And I thought, oh, my God, does that mean I'm dead? (laughs) And um, uh, I'm very, very much alive and I'm still keep writing. Well, you already answered the question that I usually conclude the program with, which was if you were going to write a six word memoir, what would it be? So I'm going to ask you another closing question instead. And you haven't prepared me for this one. (laughs) No, but I really want to know the answer to this one, if it's answerable. Is there a founding father you relate to the most or one that you would like to most sit down with today over a snifter of brandy and talk about life? Absolutely. Believe it or not, it's John Adams. He would tell you everything about the secret conversations 
But more than that, if you're a writer of biography or history, you are very dependent on the quality of the source material, especially the letters. The letters of John and Abigail, those 1,200 of them, are the most revealing letters between a prominent husband and wife in all of American history. My breakthrough with the founders as imperfect human beings, fitting with my own imperfections, came through Adams. He is the most visibly, conspicuously imperfect founder. He's vain. He says crazy things periodically, but he's completely honest and he's tougher on himself than he is on anybody else. He gives you more as a biographer and historian than anybody else. Um, so John Adams is my choice. Do you have a particular question you would like to lead off with to John? Why did you decide not to write the Declaration of Independence, but let Jefferson do it? He'd hate that question because he kept asking himself that question until the day he died. <laughs> he Way to start the conversation. Yeah, that'd get him upset. And then he'd go off into Vesuvial explosions, which would be great to watch. Joe, this has been so much fun and so informative to talk with you. I hope that history repeats itself in one way and that you keep writing and writing and writing because you truly make history come alive and reinforce the relevance of the past. So thank you for that and thank you for this time. My pleasure and I will keep doing it. When I get up in the morning, I feed the dogs and I go down with my coffee and I sit at my desk and start writing handwritten and that's the way I'm happy every day. Listeners, if you would like to learn more about Joe's extensive and acclaimed body of work, please visit josephellishistorian.com. So that's it for this episode of Author, Can I Ask You? Thanks, everybody, for listening. And if you like what you heard, please spread the word and visit me on my website, joanibcole.com. In the meantime, take care, act civil, and don't be afraid to ask the odd questions.